Chapter 4 George Whitefield, The Ministry In my judgment, George Whitefield was so entirely first and foremost among the English reformers of the eighteenth century that I make no apology for offering some further information about him. The real amount of good he did, the distinctive character of his preaching, and the private character of the man are all points that deserve consideration. They are points, I might add, about which there is a vast amount of misconception. This misconception might be unavoidable and should not surprise us. The materials for forming a correct opinion about such a man as Whitefield are necessarily very sparse. He did not write a book for the millions that achieved worldwide fame, like John Bunyan and his Pilgrim's Progress. He did not lead a crusade against an apostate church, with a nation at his back and princes on his side, like Martin Luther. He did not start a religious denomination that fastened its faith on his writings and carefully preserved his best actions and words, like John Wesley. There are Lutherans and Wesleyans, Methodists, in the present day, but there are no Whitefieldites. No, the great evangelist of the eighteenth century was a simple, sincere man who lived for only one thing, to preach Christ. If he did that, he cared for nothing else. I have no doubt that the records of such a man are large and full in heaven, but they are few and sparse upon earth. Also, we mustn't forget that most people in every age see nothing in a man like Whitefield except fanaticism and enthusiasm. They abhor everything like zeal in Christianity. They dislike everyone who turns the world upside down, who departs from old traditional ways, and who will not let the devil alone. Such people, no doubt, would tell us that the ministry of Whitefield only produced temporary excitement, that his preaching was commonplace rant, and that his character had nothing about it to be especially admired. I suppose that eighteen hundred years ago they would have said much the same about the Apostle Paul. The question, what good did Whitefield do, is one that I answer without the least hesitation. I believe that the direct good that he did to immortal souls was enormous. I will go further and say that I believe it is incalculable. Credible witnesses in England, Scotland, and America have placed on record their conviction that he was the means of converting thousands of people. Many, wherever he preached, were not merely pleased, excited, and fascinated, but were absolutely turned from sin and made thorough servants of God. I don't forget that numbering the people may often be an objectionable practice. 2 Samuel 24.10. God alone can read hearts and discern the wheat from the tares. Matthew 13.30. Many, no doubt, in days of religious excitement, are written down as converted who are not converted at all. However, I want my readers and listeners to understand that my high estimate of Whitefield's usefulness is based on a solid foundation. I ask them to notice well what Whitefield's contemporaries thought of the value of his labors. Benjamin Franklin, the well-known American philosopher, was a matter-of-fact calculating man, a Quaker by profession, and not likely to form too high an estimate of any minister's work. Yet even he confessed that it was wonderful to see the change soon made by his preaching in the manners of the inhabitants of Philadelphia. From being thoughtless or indifferent about religion, it seemed as if all the world were growing religious. Franklin himself, it can be remarked, was the leading printer of religious works at Philadelphia. 
and his readiness to print Whitefield's sermons and journals shows his judgment of the hold that George Whitefield had on the American mind. McLaurin, Willison, and McCulloch were Scottish ministers, whose names are well known north of the Tweed River, and the first two deservedly rank high as theological writers. All these have repeatedly testified that Whitefield was made an instrument of doing immense good in Scotland. Willison, in particular, says that God honored him with surprising success among sinners of all classes and beliefs. Henry Venn of Huddersfield was a man of strong good sense, as well of great grace. His opinion was that if the greatness, extent, success, and unselfishness of a man's labors can give him distinction among the children of Christ, then we are justified in saying that hardly anyone has equaled Mr. Whitefield. He also said, He was abundantly successful in his vast labors. The seals of his ministry, from first to last, I am persuaded, were more than could be credited if the number could even be determined. It is certain that his amazing popularity was only from his usefulness, for he no sooner opened his mouth as a preacher than God commanded an extraordinary blessing upon his word. John Newton was a sincere man, as well as an eminent minister of the gospel. Here is his testimony about George Whitefield. That which polished Mr. Whitefield's character as a shining light, and is now his crown of rejoicing, was the extraordinary success that the Lord was pleased to give him in winning souls. It seemed as if he never preached in vain. Perhaps there is hardly a place in all the extensive compass of his labors where some may not yet be found who thankfully acknowledge him as their spiritual father. John Wesley did not agree with Whitefield on several theological points of great importance, but when he preached his funeral sermon, he said, Have we read or heard of any person who called so many thousands, so many myriads of sinners to repentance? Above all, have we read or heard of anyone who has been the blessed instrument of bringing so many sinners from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan unto God? As valuable as these testimonies undoubtedly are, there is one point that they leave totally untouched. That point is the quantity of indirect good that Whitefield did. As great as the direct effects of his labors were, I believe firmly that the indirect effects were even greater. His ministry was made a blessing to thousands who never either saw or heard him. He was among the first in the eighteenth century who revived attention to the old truths that produced the Protestant Reformation. His constant assertion of the doctrines taught by the Reformers, along with his repeated references to the beliefs, sermons, and theology of the best English theologians, motivated many people to think and to examine their own principles. If the whole truth were known, I believe it would prove that the rise and progress of the evangelical body in the Church of England received a mighty impulse from George Whitefield. This is not the only indirect good that Whitefield did in his day. He was among the first to show the right way to meet the attacks of unbelievers and skeptics on Christianity. He clearly saw that the most powerful weapon against such people is not cold metaphysical reasoning and dry critical discourse, but preaching the whole gospel, living the whole gospel, and spreading the whole gospel. It was not the writings of Leyland, the younger Sherlock, Waterland, and Leslie that stopped the flood of unbelief half as much as the preaching of Whitefield and his companions. 
They were the men who were the true champions of Christianity. Unbelievers are seldom shaken by mere intellectual reasoning. The best arguments against them are gospel truth and gospel life. Above all, George Whitefield was the very first Englishman who seems to have thoroughly understood what Dr. Chalmers appropriately called the aggressive system. He was the first to see that Christ's ministers must do the work of fishermen. They mustn't wait for souls to come to them, but they must go after souls and compel them to come in. Luke 14:23. He did not sit quietly by his fireside like a cat on a rainy day mourning over the wickedness of the land. He went forth to face the devil in his high places. He attacked sin and wickedness face to face, and gave them no peace. He dived into holes and corners after sinners. He hunted out ignorance and wickedness wherever they could be found. In short, he set on foot a system of action which, up to his time, had been comparatively unknown in this country. However, it is a system that, once begun, has never stopped being used down to the present day. City missions, town missions, district visiting societies, open-air preaching, home missions, and special services all demonstrate that the value of the aggressive system is now thoroughly recognized by all the churches. We understand better how to go to work now than we did a hundred years ago. Let us never forget, though, that the first man in recent history to operate in this way was George Whitefield, and let us give him the credit he deserves. The distinct character of Whitefield's preaching is the next subject that demands some consideration. People naturally want to know what the secret of his unparalleled success was. The subject is one surrounded with considerable difficulty, and it's no easy matter to form a correct judgment about it. The common idea of many people that he was a mere ordinary ranting Methodist, remarkable for nothing but great fluency, strong doctrine, and a loud voice, will not bear a moment's investigation. It is a fact that no preacher in England has ever succeeded in engaging the attention of such crowds as Whitefield constantly addressed around London. No preacher has ever been so universally popular in every country that he visited, in England, Scotland, and America. No preacher has ever retained his hold on his hearers so completely as he did for thirty-four years. His popularity never waned. It was as great at the end of his day as it was at the beginning. Wherever he preached, people would leave their workshops and places of employment to gather around him and hear him, and they listened as if their eternal condition depended on it, for it did. This of itself is a great fact. To command the ear of the masses for a quarter of a century, and to be preaching constantly the whole time, is evidence of more than just ordinary power. It is another fact that Whitefield's preaching produced a powerful effect on people in every position of life. He won the admiration of high as well as low, of rich as well as poor, of learned as well as unlearned. If his preaching had been popular with none but the uneducated and the poor, we might have thought it possible that there was little in it but rhetoric and noise. However, so far from this being the case, he seems to have been acceptable to many members of the nobility and upper class. The Marquis of Lothian, the Earl of Leven, the Earl of Buchan, Lord Ray, Lord Dartmouth, and Lord James A. Gordon can be named among his warmest admirers. 
in addition to Lady Huntingdon and a host of other ladies. It is a fact that eminent critics and literary men, like Lord Bolingbroke and Lord Chesterfield, were frequently his delighted hearers. Even the cold, artificial Lord Chesterfield was known to warm under Whitefield's eloquence. Lord Bolingbroke said, He is the most extraordinary man in our times. He has the most commanding eloquence I ever heard in any person. The philosopher Benjamin Franklin spoke in no measured terms of his preaching powers. The historian David Hume declared that it was worth going twenty miles to hear him. Facts like these can never be explained away. They completely upset the theory that Whitefield's preaching was nothing but noise and rant. Bolingbroke, Chesterfield, Hume, and Franklin were not men who were easily deceived. They were no poor judges of eloquence. They were probably among the best qualified critics of their day. Their unbought and unbiased opinions appear to me to supply unanswerable proof that there must have been something very extraordinary about Whitefield's preaching. Still, though, the question remains to be answered what was the secret of Whitefield's unrivaled popularity and effectiveness? I honestly admit that with the sparse materials we possess for forming our judgment, the question is a very difficult one to answer. The person who turns to the seventy-five sermons published under Whitefield's name will probably be very disappointed. You will not find in them any superior intellect or grasp of mind. You will not find in them any deep philosophy or very remarkable thoughts. It's only fair, however, to say that most of these sermons were taken down in shorthand by reporters and published without correction. These worthy men appear to have done their work very poorly and were evidently ignorant of punctuation, paragraphing, grammar, and the gospel. The consequence is that many passages in these seventy-five sermons are what Bishop Latimer would have called a mingle-mangle, and what we call in this day a complete mess. No wonder that poor Whitefield says in one of his last letters dated September 26, 1769, I wish you had advertised against the publication of my last sermon. It is not verbatim as I delivered it. In some places it makes me speak false concord, and even nonsense. In other places the sense and connection are destroyed by injudicious, disjointed paragraphs, and the whole thing is entirely unfit for the public review. I will say, though, that with all their faults, Whitefield's printed sermons will still be a benefit to those who read them. The reader must remember that they were not carefully prepared for publication like the sermons of Melville or Bradley, but were poorly written down, punctuated, and paragraphed, and you must read them with this continually in mind. Moreover, you must remember that English composition for speaking to hearers and English composition for private reading are almost like two different languages so that sermons that preach well read badly. Remember these two things and judge accordingly, and I am sure that you will find much to appreciate in many of Whitefield's sermons. For my own part, I must plainly say that I think they are greatly underrated. The Distinctive Characteristics of Whitefield's Preaching For one thing, Whitefield preached an especially pure gospel. Few men, perhaps, ever gave their hearers so much wheat and so little chaff. He didn't get up to talk about his denomination, his cause, his interests, or his duties. He was always telling you about your sins, your heart, 
Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, and the absolute need of repentance, faith, and holiness, in the way that the Bible presents these great subjects. Oh, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, he would often say. I must be excused if I mention it in almost all my sermons. Preaching of this kind is the preaching that God delights to honor. It must be preeminently a manifestation of truth. For another thing, Whitefield's preaching was especially clear and simple. His hearers, no matter what they thought of his doctrine, could never fail to understand what he meant. His style of speaking was simple, plain, and conversational. He seemed to abhor long and involved sentences. He always saw his target and went directly at it. He seldom troubled his hearers with complicated arguments and complex reasoning. Simple Bible statements, relevant illustrations, and applicable anecdotes were the more common weapons that he used. The result was that his hearers always understood him. He never shot above their heads. Here again is one great aspect of a preacher's success. He must labor by all means to be understood. It was a wise saying of Archbishop Usher, To make easy things seem hard is every man's work, but to make hard things easy is the work of a great preacher. For another thing, Whitefield was an especially bold and direct preacher. He never used that indefinite expression, we, which seems so common to English pulpit oratory, and which only leaves a hearer's mind in a state of hazy confusion. He met men face to face, like one who had a message from God to them. I have come here to speak to you about your soul. The result was that many of his hearers often used to think that his sermons were meant particularly for them. He wasn't content, as many are, with sticking on a small piece of application at the end of a long sermon. On the contrary, a constant vein of application ran through all his sermons. This is for you, and this is for you. His hearers were never let alone. Another outstanding feature of Whitefield's preaching was his remarkable power of description. The Arabians have a proverb that says, He is the best orator who can turn men's ears into eyes. Whitefield seems to have had a distinct ability to do this. He dramatized his subject so fully that it seemed to move and walk before your eyes. He used to draw such vivid pictures of the things he was portraying that his hearers believed they actually saw and heard them. One of his biographers described such an occasion. On one occasion, Lord Chesterfield was among his hearers. The great preacher, in describing the miserable condition of an unconverted sinner, illustrated the subject by describing a blind beggar. The night was dark and the road dangerous. The poor beggar was deserted by his dog near the edge of a cliff, and he had nothing to aid him in groping his way except his staff. Whitefield so warmed with his subject and enforced it with such descriptive power that the whole audience was kept in breathless silence, as if they saw the movements of the poor old man. After a while, when the beggar was about to take the fatal step that would have hurled him down the precipice to certain destruction, Lord Chesterfield actually made a rush forward to save him, exclaiming aloud, He's gone, he's gone. The noble Lord Chesterfield had been so completely carried away by the preacher that he forgot that it was only a depiction of the events. Another leading characteristic of Whitefield's preaching was his tremendous earnestness. One poor, uneducated man said of him that 
he preached like a lion. George Whitefield succeeded in showing people that he at least believed all that he was saying, and that his heart, soul, mind, and strength were intent on making them believe it too. His sermons were not like the morning and evening gun at Portsmouth, a kind of formal discharge fired off as a routine matter that disturbs no one. Whitefield's sermons were all life and fire. There was no getting away from them. Sleep was next to impossible. You must listen whether you liked it or not. There was a holy violence about him that firmly grabbed your attention by storm. You were quickly swept off your feet by his energy before you had time to think about what you would do. We can be sure that this was one secret of his success. We must convince people that we are sincere ourselves if we want to be believed. The difference between one preacher and another is often not so much in the things said as in the way they are said. It is recorded by one of Whitefield's biographers that an American gentleman once went to hear him for the first time because of the report he heard of Whitefield's preaching powers. The day was rainy, the congregation comparatively thin, and the beginning of the sermon rather heavy. Our American friend began to say to himself, This man is no great wonder after all. He looked around and saw the congregation as little interested as himself. One old man in front of the pulpit had fallen asleep. Whitefield suddenly stopped. His countenance changed. Then he suddenly broke forth in an altered tone. If I had come to speak to you in my own name, you might well rest your elbows on your knees and your heads on your hands and sleep, and once in a while look up and ask, What is this babbler talking about? But I have not come to you in my own name. No, I have come to you in the name of the Lord Almighty. Here he brought down his hand and foot with a force that made the building ring, and I must and will be heard. The congregation jumped. The old man woke up at once. Yes, yes, cried Whitefield, fixing his eyes on him. I have waked you up, have I? I meant to do it. I am not come here to preach to stocks and stones. I have come to you in the name of the Lord God Almighty, and I must and will have an audience. The hearers were stripped of their apathy at once. Every word of the sermon after this was heard with deep attention, and the American gentleman never forgot it. One more feature in Whitefield's preaching deserves special notice, and that is the immense amount of emotion and feeling that it always contained. It wasn't uncommon for him to weep profusely in the pulpit. Cornelius Winter, who often accompanied him in his latter journeys, went so far as to say that he hardly ever knew him to get through a sermon without some tears. There seems to have been nothing of pretense in this. He felt intensely for the souls before him, and his feelings found an outlet in tears. Of all the ingredients of his success in preaching, I suspect that none were as powerful as this. It awakened affections and touched secret springs in people that no amount of reasoning and expression could have done. It smoothed down the preconceptions that many had devised against him. They could not hate the man who wept so much over their souls. I came to hear you, one man said to him, with my pocket full of stones, intending to break your head, but your sermon got the better of me, and it broke my heart. Once you become convinced that someone cares about you, you will gladly listen to anything he has to say. I will now ask you to add to this analysis of Whitefield's preaching 
that even by nature he possessed several of the rarest gifts that equip a person to be an orator. His action was perfect, so perfect that even David Garrick, the famous actor, gave it unqualified praise. Whitefield's voice was as wonderful as his action, so powerful that thirty thousand people could hear him at the same time, and yet his voice was so musical and well-toned that some said he could raise tears by his pronunciation of the word Mesopotamia. His manner in the pulpit was so wondrously graceful and fascinating that it was said that no one could hear him for five minutes without forgetting that he squinted. His fluency and command of proper language were of the highest order, prompting him to always use the right word in the right place. Add these gifts to the things already mentioned, and then consider whether there is not sufficient cause in our hands to account for his power and popularity as a preacher. I will not hesitate to say that I believe that no English preacher has ever possessed such a combination of excellent qualifications as George Whitefield. Some, no doubt, have surpassed him in some of his gifts, and others, possibly, have equaled him in other gifts. But for a well-balanced combination of some of the finest gifts that a preacher can possess, united with an unrivaled voice, manner, delivery, action, and command of words, Whitefield, in my opinion, stands alone. No Englishman, I believe, dead or alive, has ever equaled him. I believe we will always find that just in proportion as preachers have approached that wondrous combination of rare gifts that Whitefield possessed, just in that very proportion have they attained what one defines true eloquence to be, a strange power of making themselves believed. Whitefield's Inner Life and Personal Character The inner life and personal character of this great spiritual hero of the eighteenth century is a part of my subject on which I will not dwell at any length. In fact, there is no necessity to do so. He was a remarkably straightforward man. There was nothing about him requiring apology or explanation. His faults and good qualities were both as clear and plain as noonday. I will, therefore, be content to simply point out the most noticeable features of his character as far as they can be gathered from his letters and the accounts of his contemporaries. He was a man of deep and genuine humility. No one can read his fourteen hundred letters without noticing this. Again and again, at the very height of his popularity, we find him speaking of himself and his works in the lowliest terms. God be merciful to me, a sinner. He wrote on September 11, 1753, and give me for his infinite mercy's sake a humble, thankful, and resigned heart. Truly, I am viler than the vilest, and I stand amazed at his using such a wretch as I am. Let none of my friends, he wrote on December 27, 1753, cry to such a sluggish, lukewarm, unprofitable worm. Spare yourself. Rather, spur me on, I beg you, with an Awake, you sleeper, and begin to do something for your God. Language like this, no doubt, seems foolish and artificial to the world, but the well-instructed Bible reader will see in it the heartfelt experience of all the holiest saints. It is the language of men like Richard Baxter, David Brainerd, and Robert Murray McChaney. It is the same mind that was in the inspired Apostle Paul. Those who have the most light and grace are always the most humble. George Whitefield was a man of burning love for our Lord Jesus Christ. 
that name which is above every name, Philippians 2, 9, stands out incessantly in all his correspondence. Like fragrant ointment, it gives a sweet savor to all his communications. He never seems weary of saying something about Jesus. My master, as George Herbert said, was never out of his mind for long. His love, his atonement, his precious blood, his righteousness, his readiness to receive sinners, his patience and tender dealing with saints, are themes that always appear fresh before his eyes. In this respect at least, there is a curious likeness between him and that glorious Scottish clergyman Samuel Rutherford. He was a man of unwearied diligence and work about his master's business. It would be difficult, perhaps, to name anyone in the history of Christianity who worked so hard for Christ, and who so thoroughly consumed himself in his service. Henry Venn, in a funeral sermon for him that was preached in the city of Bath, gave the following testimony. What a sign and wonder this man of God was in the greatness of his labors! One cannot but stand amazed that his mortal frame could, for the space of nearly thirty years, without interruption, sustain the weight of them, for what is so demanding to the human frame in youth especially, as long continued a frequent and violent straining of the lungs. Who that knows their structure would think it is possible that a person a little above the age of manhood could speak for forty hours in a single week? Yet Whitefield typically preached forty hours in a week for many years, and in very many weeks sixty hours, and that to thousands of people. Then, after this work, instead of taking any rest, he could be found offering up prayers and intercessions with hymns and spiritual songs, as his manner was in every house to which he was invited. The truth is that in regard to labor, this extraordinary servant of God did as much in a few weeks as most of those who exert themselves are able to do in the space of a year. He was a man of eminent self-denial to the end. His style of living was most simple. He was remarkable for moderation in eating and drinking. All throughout his life he was an early riser. His usual hour for getting up was four o'clock, both in summer and winter, and unless he was praying he was just as regular in going to bed about ten at night. Whitefield was a man of prayerful habits, and he frequently spent whole nights in reading and devotion. Cornelius Winter, who often slept in the same room, says that Whitefield would sometimes rise during the night for this purpose. He cared little for money, except as a means to help the cause of Christ. He often refused it when offered to him for his own use, even once when the amount was about thirty thousand dollars. He did not accumulate any fortune, and did not endow a wealthy family. The little money he left behind him at his death arose entirely from the gifts of friends. The Pope's harsh saying about Luther this German beast does not love gold, could have been equally applied to Whitefield. George Whitefield was a man of remarkable unselfishness and single-mindedness. He seemed to live for only two purposes, the glory of God and the salvation of souls. He knew nothing at all about secondary and hidden purposes. He didn't raise a party of followers who took his name. He didn't establish a denominational system of which his own writings would be the main teaching. A favorite expression of his is most characteristic of the man. Let the name of George Whitefield perish, so long as Christ is exalted.
He was a man of an especially happy and cheerful spirit. No one who saw him could ever doubt that he enjoyed his religion. He was tested in many ways throughout his ministry. He was slandered by some, despised by others, misrepresented by false brethren, opposed everywhere by the ignorant clergy of his time, and troubled by constant contention. But his resilience never failed him. He was notably a rejoicing Christian, whose very demeanor endorsed his master's service. After his death, a respected lady of New York, when speaking of the influences by which the Spirit won her heart to God, used these remarkable words, Mr. Whitefield was so cheerful that it tempted me to become a Christian. Last but not least, he was a man of extraordinary compassion, broad-mindedness, and generosity in his religion. He knew nothing of that narrow-minded feeling that makes some people think that everything must be useless outside of their own camps, and that their own party has got a complete monopoly of truth and heaven. He loved all who loved the Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Ephesians 6.24 He measured all by the measure that the angels use. Did they profess repentance toward God, faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ, and holiness of life? If they did, they were as his brethren. His soul was with such people, no matter what name they were called. Minor differences were wood, hay, and stubble to him. The marks of the Lord Jesus were the only marks he cared for. This broad-mindedness is even more remarkable when we consider the spirit of the times in which he lived. Even Ralph and Ebenezer Erskine in Scotland wanted Whitefield to preach for no other denomination but their own, namely the Succession Church. He asked them, Why only for them? He received the notable answer that they were the Lord's people. This was more than Whitefield could stand. He asked if there were no other Lord's people but themselves. He told them, If all others were the devil's people, they certainly had more need to be preached to. He ended up informing them that if the Pope himself would lend him his pulpit, he would gladly proclaim the righteousness of Christ in it. He adhered to this broad-mindedness of spirit all his days. If other Christians misrepresented him, he forgave them. If they refused to work with him, he still loved them. Nothing could be a more powerful testimony against narrow-mindedness than his request made shortly before his death that John Wesley should be asked to preach his funeral sermon when he died. Wesley and he had long ceased to agree about Calvinistic points, but Whitefield, to the very end, was determined to forget minor differences and to regard Wesley as Calvin did Luther, only as a good servant of Jesus Christ. On another occasion, a critical professed follower of religion asked him whether he thought they would see John Wesley in heaven. No, sir, was the remarkable answer. He will be so near the throne, and we will be at such a distance that we will hardly get a sight of him. Certainly, George Whitefield was not a man without faults. Like all of God's saints, he was an imperfect creature. He sometimes erred in judgment. He often made rushed conclusions about providence and mistook his own inclination for God's leadings. He was frequently hasty both with his tongue and his pen. He had no business to say that Archbishop Tillotson knew no more of the gospel than Mohammed. He was wrong to categorize some people as the Lord's enemies and others as the Lord's friends so quickly and emphatically as he sometimes did. He was to blame for denouncing many of the clergy as letter-learned Pharisees, because they couldn't receive the doctrine 
of the new birth. Still, after all that's been said, there can be no doubt that overall he was a notably holy, self-denying, and consistent man. The faults of his character, says an American writer, were like spots on the sun, detected without much difficulty by any cool and careful observer who takes any effort to look for them, but to all practical purposes lost in one general and genial brightness. It would be good indeed for the churches of our day if God were to give them more ministers like the great evangelist of England a hundred years ago. A short extract from the conclusion of a sermon preached by Whitefield on Kennington Common may be interesting to some listeners and might serve to give them a little idea of the great preacher's style. It was a sermon on the text, What Do You Think of Christ? Matthew twenty-two forty-two. O oh, my brethren, my heart is extended toward you. I trust I feel something of that hidden but powerful presence of Christ while I am preaching to you. Indeed, it is sweet, but it is exceedingly comfortable. The only harm I wish upon you, who without cause are my enemies, is that you felt the same way. Believe me, although it would be hell to my soul to return to an unsaved condition again, yet I would willingly change places with you for a little while, so that you might know what it is to have Christ dwelling in your hearts by faith. Do not turn your backs. Do not let the devil hurry you away. Do not be afraid of convictions. Do not think worse of a doctrine because it is preached outside the church walls. Our Lord, in the days of His flesh, preached on a mount, in a ship, and in a field, and I am convinced that many have felt His gracious presence here. Indeed, we speak what we know. Do not therefore reject the kingdom of God against yourselves. Be so wise as to receive our testimony. I cannot, I will not, let you go. Stay a little while, and let us reason together. However lightly you might esteem your souls, I know that our Lord has set an inestimable value on them. He thought them worthy of His most precious blood. I urge you, therefore, O sinners, be reconciled to God. I hope you do not fear being accepted in the Beloved. Behold, He calls you. Behold, He follows you with His mercy, and has sent forth His servants into the highways and hedges to compel you to come in. Remember then, that at this hour of this day, in this year, and in this place, you are all told what you should think concerning Jesus Christ. If you now perish, it will not be from lack of knowledge. I am free from the blood of you all. You cannot say, I have been preaching damnation to you. You cannot say, I have, like legalistic preachers, been requiring you to make bricks without straw. I have not asked you to make yourselves saints and then come to God. I have offered you salvation on as cheap terms as you can desire. I have offered you Christ's whole wisdom, Christ's whole righteousness, Christ's whole sanctification, and eternal redemption, if you will only believe on Him. If you say you cannot believe, you speak the truth, for faith, as well as every other blessing, is the gift of God. So then, wait upon God, and who knows, but He may have mercy on you. Why do we not hold more loving thoughts of Christ? Do you think He will have mercy on others, and not on you? Are you not sinners? Did not Jesus Christ come into the world to save sinners? If you say you are the chief of sinners, I answer that it will be no hindrance to your salvation. Indeed it will not, if you lay hold on Christ by faith. Read the Gospels and see how kind He was to His disciples, who had fled from and denied Him. Go tell my brethren, He said. He did not say, Go tell those traitors, but 
Go tell my brethren and Peter. It is as though he had said, Go tell my brethren in general, and Peter specifically, that I am risen. Oh, comfort his poor feeble heart! Tell him I am reconciled to him. Tell him to weep no more so bitterly. For though he denied me three times with oaths and curses, yet I have died for his sins. I have risen again for his justification. I freely forgive him all. See how slow to anger our all-merciful high priest was, and how great his kindness was. Do you think he has changed his nature, and forgets poor sinners now that he is exalted to the right hand of God? No, for he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he sits there only to make intercession for us. Come then, you prostitutes! Come, you who are hated! Come, you most abandoned sinners! Come and believe on Jesus Christ! Though the whole world despises you and casts you out, yet he will not refuse to take you up. O amazing, infinitely condescending love! Even you he will not be ashamed to call his brethren. How will you escape if you neglect such a glorious offer of salvation? What would the damned spirits now in the prison of hell give if Christ were so freely offered to them? Why are we not lifting up our eyes in torment? Does anyone in this great multitude dare say he does not deserve damnation? Why do we remain here while others have been taken away by death? What is this but an example of God's free grace and a sign of his good will toward us? Let God's goodness lead us to repentance. Oh, let there be joy in heaven over some of you repenting.